This is Real History with Melissa, and it is Thursday, the 9th of March, 2023. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Neil Foster, and many of you will know that Neil Foster had Alan Watt on as a guest quite a few times on his show, Reality Bites Radio. They spoke many times over the years, but I am interested to hear a little bit more. I know some of his background, and he's had an interesting life, and I wanted to have him share a bit of that with you. Hi, Neil. Hi, Melissa. How are you doing? Oh, getting by, getting by, as best you can in these uh, trying times. Yeah. I'm just going to let you decide where you want to dive in. I think what you've been doing the last few years and how you've been preparing yourself for the situation that we find ourselves in where it gets a little tougher every year is quite interesting, but you might want to go backwards in time a little bit. And you mentioned to me in an email that you thought you might even like to talk about where you were when you first heard Alan's talks, but you start where you feel like it. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll go way, way back to when I was uh, barely three or four years old, I think. Ah. And and my my parents split up. I never I never knew my mother or met my mother. Oh. And my father was a single parent, so I had to go to a Catholic boarding school on the other side of Scotland. Mm. Um, all I, all I really remember about it is. I never had any problem there, as you've heard in the, the media with priests and all that. Never had any of that. Mm-hmm. But there was a, a wide age range there from, like, children like myself from maybe five years old to 18, 19, you know, uh, orphans and things like that. And I was, I was writing letters home to my, to my dad at the time, uh, in perfect cursive, uh, because that's the way they taught you. Mm-hmm. And uh, my handwriting back then was way better than it is now. <laughs> but um, I spent five years there, and then my my father remarried. Uh, I ended up with two stepbrothers and a stepsister who I fought with almost continually for about a year, two years. <laughs> but we get on fine now. Good. And um, and I went into the education system in in Scotland. Uh, my dad sent me to a Catholic school, and my uh, stepbrothers, stepsisters went to Protestant school. So I, I don't have any any backup from them, but uh, it was it was strange. Even at, even at ten years old, going into a classroom and and realizing that everybody else in the class was like five years behind, um, they, they could barely read or write at all, um, and that kind of went through. I had another three years there before I went to secondary school, which is high school here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was even worse there. I was still sitting there going, what's, what's going on? These, these people don't know anything. Um, and but, it was just, it was quite bizarre. Like, at that time I was 13. Now, let me and, just understand, you had started off in the Catholic system and then got transferred to a Protestant system and they were... No, no, con- no, no, okay. no, no. I, I continued in the Catholic system oh, okay. and my, my stepbrothers and stepsister went to the Protestant schools. Okay. But so, your, um, the Catholic school was just behind in terms of yeah. education. Okay. Oh, yeah. And it was, n- nobody seemed to ask any questions. And I've, I've told this story many times on Reality Bites, and people are probably sick of hearing it, but uh, I'll tell it again. <laughs> uh, our, fir- our first ever religious education class, um, which I'll, I'll say right now, put me off religion for life. <laughs> um, the, the, the guy, uh, and he was called Mr. Priestley, which I found very odd. <laughs> So he said, okay, you've been uh, washed up on a desert island and you crawl up the beach and you come across a hut and you go inside and there's food on the table, there's a, there's a roaring fire in the fireplace. And the first thing I thought about was, it's a desert island, why have you got a roaring fire on? <laughs> but, uh, he says, there's food on the table and the, the fire's roaring, you've got heat, you've got food. Don't you think that... Uh, God is looking after you. And I put my hand up and I said, no, sir, somebody lives there. <laughs> and uh, I was sent to the headmaster and got the belt for that. <laughs> so uh, 
that was my that was my first. Well, it wasn't my first. Actually, it wasn't my first encounter with religion because obviously I'd been at the Catholic boarding school and I was a choir boy and did all that stuff and the, the you know, all that, all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you went you went to mass every day there, every morning. But um, it was not. It wasn't really. I don't remember it really being forced on you, you know. But then you got into the the secondary school and you got this kind of nonsense. So I was well. Uh, I'm finished with that. Um. And then I just couldn't wait to get out of school because I didn't see any point in being there. You weren't allowed to ask questions and basically it was a, a matter of just keeping your head down, saying what they wanted you to say and get out. That was it. So I did that. I did my, my exams. Uh, I got the usual report card, could do better. But um, <laughs> I had no incentive to do better because, uh, you know, they wouldn't listen to what you had to say. So... Later in life, I went to university, um, basically because I just thought, well, I'm doing this job anyway. It was in the hospitality industry. I was worked in numerous bars and restaurants and things like that. So I did a management course and promptly got sick of that. And, uh, I was working uh, at the same time, paying a mortgage. And basically, the, the level of... Uh, so-called education they were giving you was was stuff that I'd done at school in primary school at ten years old. So yeah. I was like, well, this is this is this is not. So I was just and they just introduced this modular learning where they give you these modules and you get thirteen weeks of the subject, but uh, they give you all this stuff at once. And I, I was going home and filling it all in in, a, in one night and handing it back in and saying, I've done that. I'm not coming back to this class. And they say, well, you have to, or we'll just report you absent and your, your bursary will be cancelled or whatever. I says, do what you want. I says, but I've got to work. I've got to pay my mortgage. So I, I ain't coming in here to do this. That's it. And they, they never did anything. So that was okay. <laughs> but, but again, the, I was, I was a mature student and everybody else in the class was straight out of school. And the teachers were basically, reading out of textbooks, telling them how things work, how things should work, blah, blah, blah. And I'd, I'd worked in the industry for many years, and I'd put my hand up in one class, and I'd say, sir, I say, it doesn't work like that. You're taking no account of human interaction, you know, human behavior. It just doesn't work in reality like that. And again, I was thrown out of the class for that. <laughs> just... And, uh, Haven't you I, learned, I, I, didn't you learn that you're not supposed to think outside the box, that the point of it was well, conformity? But that wasn't thinking outside the box, that was the actual <laughs> Just, reality. Yeah. Um, there was nothing unusual about that. I'd, I'd worked there and I said, and yeah. I, I, gave them ex- I, can't, I can't remember what examples I gave them, but I gave them examples and, you know, and I turned around to the people in the class and said, this is, this is garbage. You know, it doesn't work like that. But anyway, that was what university was just, again, go through the motions, get the piece of paper, uh, gave it to my dad, said, that's for you, because I'm no use for it. <laughs> and I uh, went on from there to, well, I suppose I, I got some jobs out of that, management jobs and stuff. But um, <laughs> what finally set me off was I was working in a restaurant with a South African owner, and he was, he was as racist as they come. And he would, he would come out with uh, comments and this this comment was the one that uh, finally uh, made me leave Scotland, really, uh, or a precursor to it. Uh, there was a, a a black couple sitting at a table, and he says, "Quick, quick, get a camera! They're using a knife and fork." Oh. And uh, they heard them. Ah. Oh. And they were they were they were too polite to say anything. And I I went over and I says, "Look." I'm not going to apologise for him, I says, but I ain't going to work for him again either. So I just went over and quit. Wow. So so they could see that I'd done it. I said, I ain't working here. Uh. And um, I, I was kind of always like that. If uh, My my view on work is if you start going into work and looking at the clock, as soon as you get in, it's time to leave. Yes. Um, but that was, that was the kind of final straw with that one. And I'd been going to Turkey quite a bit on holidays. That used to be all I did. I used to save all my money and go on holiday three times a year just to get out of the country because I was, I was sick of it. I was, I was actually sick of Scottish people. That's, that's a terrible thing to say, but I, I just, the apathy, uh, uh. They, they weren't prepared to do anything to, to 
stop what was coming. And I could see it, but I didn't really understand it at the time. Mm-hmm. I wasn't uh, awake, as they say, at the time, but I knew there was something wrong. And so I left and went to Turkey and worked in a restaurant there and just did a nearly a year just having a good time, basically. And then after that, I ended up in Ireland, where I guess everything really started. Um, I met some guys, I can't even remember how, but uh, they'd had this idea to start a newspaper. Oh, actually, I should, I should, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going in the wrong order here. Because after, <laughs> after Turkey, I went to Ireland, and then I left Ireland and went to Bulgaria. Ah. Because uh, I'd, had a, I'd had an apartment in Edinburgh, which I'd wanted to sell for a long time, and I'd never really done anything about it. I'd, I'd had it rented out. And I just, I had to sell, and I thought, okay, I'll, uh, I was going to buy something in Turkey. And then while I was looking at things in Turkey, I came across Bulgaria, and I thought, oh, the houses can't be that cheap. And they, they were. <laughs> so I bought a house in Turkey with four bedrooms for 12,000 euros. A, a, a house in Bulgaria? You- yeah. Okay. This was in 2004. And I only found out later, and so did my neighbour, that uh, we'd both been screwed and it should have been 6,000 euros. Wow. <laughs> and that still goes on today, but uh, not if you're wise enough to, to know about it. But, um, but, you, yeah, so, but at 12,000 euros at the time, you felt it was a good deal? Oh, it was a good deal. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean, I put another... I mean, I put another 12,000, 13,000 into it. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was a, a bridge being built over the Danube there, and that's why I bought the house where I bought it, because uh, my plan was to rent it out to the engineers, which that worked. Mm. And the house is paid for five times over, six times oh. over. So, um, And at the same time, I got a job on the bridge, and I was living with my English friend for, I think it was yeah, five, five euros uh, a day. I was living in his house, and I was getting... Uh, 600 euros a month from the Spanish company that was renting my house, so I was quite happy. Yes. And I was, and I was working on the bridge as well. So, uh, just an interesting side note on that, that Spanish company, which is, uh, which was FCC, which I don't know if you've heard of, but they're one of the biggest recycling companies in the world. No, it's S as in Sam, CC? F. Oh, or, F. Uh, okay. Yeah, oh. FCC. Okay. It's a, it's a Spanish name, I can't pronounce mm-hmm. it, but, um, the, uh, yeah, they're, they're one of the biggest recycling companies in the world. And they run a lot of the, uh, the recycling centers in the UK and Ireland and places mm-hmm. like that. And they, they were responsible for building the bridge there. And the chief engineer was, uh, renting my house out. Um, but unfortunately, he was also ordering metal for the bridge and selling it to gypsies in Bulgaria. And, uh, he ended up selling it to the wrong gypsies, and another gang of gypsies came around to the house, dragged them out, and left them for dead in the street. Oh, no. But um, he kept his job, um, even although he was, he was uh, defrauding, well, the European Union at the time and right. the Bulgarian people. So that was a, that was a little side issue. But uh, that bridge that was built was 100, 100 million euros over budget, and it started falling apart the minute they opened it. <laughs> so uh, I, I put the recycling thing uh, with FCC and the company building the bridge in the same bracket maybe they're using recycled materials I don't know but anyway that was Bulgaria and then I had another house in the mountains of Bulgaria so we're getting to the island bit now and I was doing house renovations with another English friend of mine in the same village and of course I, I didn't have any uh, English television or anything. I just had the computer and the, the internet. So I was just looking for things to watch. And like like a couple of your other uh, speakers you've had on, Alex Jones was there. And that was the first place I heard Alan. Hmm. And uh, near enough the last time I listened to Alex Jones. What, what year was this that you... That would be, oh, 2006 maybe? Mm-hmm. Okay. Somewhere. Yeah, 2006 or early 2007. I was there in the winter, so mm-hmm. probably two, late 2006, 2007. And I, I just I thought, oh, that's, that's somebody Scottish. That's, that's unusual. <laughs> uh, and I just started listening to him. And, and after listening to Alex Jones and then listening to Alan, you thought, I thought, yeah, this guy's got it. This, this guy knows what he's talking about. Jones is just 
shouting and shouting and shouting and, you know, appealing to the American audience, where I think Alan appealed to everybody. You know, from, I, I mean, I don't mean uh, in audience uh, context. I mean, he, he appealed to people all over the world because of the way he presented the information. Right. There, um, there is a mindset. There, I mean, I think that has changed gradually over the years. But, you know, back in the 90s and the early 2000s, there was definitely, Alan would call it a navel-gazing mindset amongst Americans who listened mm. to Patriot Radio. It was all politics, and there was a lot of shouting because I'm not sure why, but the Americans really do like a lot of emotional fervor in the delivery. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I think, as, as Alan said many times, if you start bringing emotion into things, you're not really thinking straight. True. So, um, yeah. So I, I, I'll say one thing about Bulgaria. I mean, the people are, are pretty poor, um, but they have the most amazing internet in the world that I've ever, really? been, that I've ever had. Uh, I was at the top of a mountain. Uh, I had an antenna on my roof, and it was pointing to the top of another mountain where I was getting my signal from. And I, would, I started to download every talk that Alan did at the time, and I put them on discs, and I think they're still in my mum and dad's loft <laughs> back in the UK. Um, but I could, I could download one of those talks in like 30 seconds. Oh, my goodness. It was just direct line of sight to the antenna on the top of the mountain. Wow. Um, but if you got heavy snow, you were a bit screwed, but... It, generally, it was uh, it was good. So that was. I started listening to them, and started listening to Alan every week after that. Um, and eventually, where am I now? I don't know. Went back to I went back to Ireland for a while, and that's that's when I met the guys who were talking about the paper, and that transpired that yeah, I've got a website. Da da da. Have you ever written anything? I'm like, ah, only letters to my dad, <laughs> you know, back back in the day. And they said, well, you know, you could maybe try writing stuff. And I ended up writing five or six, uh, not not so much for the first one. The first one was a first newspaper, Sovereign Independent it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a black and white issue because that was the cheapest way of doing it. And this was about the time of the Lisbon Treaty mm-hmm. in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And while that was going on, just another little story. On the night of the vote, I lived in a small village in Ireland, and there was only, I, I don't know, maybe if, just I'll pick a number, say there was 300 people eligible to vote. Uh, I wasn't one of them because I wasn't a citizen. Mm-hmm. But I did have a, a cafe there, so I was a business owner, so I was allowed to vote in local elections, but not uh, anything to do with the Constitution. Mm-hmm. So I went down to the, the polling station, and it was, a, it was a simple yes/no vote. Do you want to ratify the Lisbon Treaty or don't you? And I just went down, put two X's in the box. I, I, I went down and put on the thickest Scottish accent I could put on to the, the two old ladies that were sitting there, thinking, "Well, they'll ask me for ID or something," you know. But nope, they didn't. So I said, "Okay." So I took the ballot, the ballot slip, put the two X's in the box. That saved me getting into trouble for trying to vote fraudulently or something. And. Uh, Went away and I asked, I went down at 10 o'clock that night when the polling station closed and I asked them how many, uh, people had voted and how many people were eligible to vote. So, off the top of my head, as I say, say, say 300 people were eligible to vote, uh, and only 250 voted, for example. Mm-hmm. I say, it's right. They call that the tally. Mm-hmm. So, I goes, okay, that's fine. So me and a friend, we, waited there in a, in a car until that box was picked up. And, and I should add, those uh, ballot boxes were sent to uh, private individuals' homes, uh, unlocked prior to the, the so-called vote. That's, uh, was, uh, that's interesting. Not surprising. Uh, which, is unheard but... <laughs> of, which is unheard of. And, and also, um, when I voted, uh, voted in inverted commas, because I didn't, uh, it was with pencils, which, mm. uh, again, is unheard of. So we followed the ballot box and the van, which was picking up the ballot boxes from all the other stations and it was taking them to uh, Roscommon, which is the, the main town in the, the county that we lived. 
And it was followed, the van was followed by a, an unmarked police car. And they knew we were following them. And they were speeding through country roads at like 70 miles an hour. In the dark. And uh, they stopped at a, a gas station, petrol station. And it, one of the, uh, the cops came over to the car and uh, asked me to roll the window down. So I, I rolled it down a couple of inches. And he says, uh, why are you following us? I says, why have you stopped? <laughs> and, it, and he says, what do you mean? I says, well, you're supposed to go directly from the, the voting stations to the, the count centre. You're not supposed to stop anywhere. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's, he said, your, your headlights are on full beam. You've been blinding us all the way down the road. I says, no, I haven't. And I put them on full beam. I says, that's full beam. That isn't. <laughs> and, and off he went. But we got to the count centre and I know this is going on a bit long, but uh, we got to the count centre and uh, all these vans turned up with all the backs, these uh, box vans, and all the doors were open. And there was guys running in and out of the count centre with mallet boxes. Blatant cheating going on. Uh-huh. Uh, and we were taking photographs of it. And again, the same cop came over and started harassing us to leave the area, blah, blah, blah. Um, he didn't want to be on film. And then I just said, well, stop stepping in front of the camera. <laughs> Yeah, I ain't here to film you, I'm here to film the vans. And uh, he went off not happy, but uh, there's nothing you could do about it because it's a public place. <laughs> so we turned up the next morning. Uh, we got like, two hours sleep, so we turned up the next morning before they'd opened the doors and had big padlocks on the doors, which was quite farcical considering what had gone on the night before. Mm-hmm. And we get in, and all the, all the local politicians are there. And... The lady says, okay, um, we can unlock this door. So we all go in. And then she says to somebody, you can, you can, uh, you can open the other door now. And we're like, what other door? Oh, the door around the back where all the boxes were going in. Right, okay. And I went up and I found where my uh, village's box was being counted. And I watched them counting them out. And I said, uh, what's the tally? And it matched up with what I'd got the night before. Mm-hmm. So, no, my... Arithmetically, there was 50 ballot slips which hadn't been used because 50 people hadn't voted. Mm-hmm. So I said to them, where are the blank slips? And she says, what do you mean? I says, well, where's the slips for the people that didn't vote? Because they're supposed to be in the box. Oh, uh, none of the boxes have got blank slips in them. Mm-hmm. So, so what they'd done is uh, they'd basically had the open boxes and they'd pre-filled them, I think with a, a number of ballots to make sure it was a yes vote. And even before a box was opened, Sky News was saying it was a yes vote for uh, the Lisbon Treaty to supersede uh, the Irish Constitution. Mm. It's incredible. Mm. So anyway, anyway, we went on from there. Issue 2, issue 3, issue 4, issue 5, issue 6. And we gave them all away for free. It was all our own money, all our own time. Uh, I think I actually sent one, one or two to Alan. Yeah, I uh, remember those. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And and you really, also, uh, I just re- re- recollected this. It had been a while since I thought of it, but I was making my very first video a few days ago, and I was looking for <clears throat> a different image of Alan. And the one that I found, he was sitting in that chair outside with the little vest with the wolves that had been applicated. Yeah. It was from the Sovereign Independent. It even had yeah. the co- copyright. I used your copyrighted photo. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. It said Sovereign no, Independent. Was, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, But yeah, we did the newspapers and then we put on a few conferences. And Alan, we, I asked Alan if he'd do a, a video for us and we played that right at the start of the conference. Mm. And uh, people were kind of. What, what's always amazed me about Alan is the amount of people who haven't heard of him. That, yes, that's always it's always amazed me because people were, people were sitting down going, "Who's this guy? Who's this guy?" And I'd have to explain it to them, and uh, they were mesmerised mm-hmm. because of the 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 simple way it was it was stating the facts and how easy it was to. Uh, to comprehend exactly what he was saying, he, he, even though these people were supposedly awake, you know, these people that were come to the conference mm-hmm. were supposedly awake already, but they were, they were amazed at how how much clarity there was in what he was saying. Well, how you much know, common sense. I, I, 
I think that the best, and I heard Alan say this, but it's certainly true, it bears repeating that the best form of censorship is simply non-acknowledgement. You just yeah. don't, don't talk about him. You don't, don't refute him or, you know, debunk him or, you know, deconstruct him. Just don't talk about him. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, uh, I, I can't remember. I think I must have done an interview with Alan before that. Uh, and actually the first one was on Awake Radio, it was called at the time. And I think I was still doing Sovereign Independent Radio. It wasn't Reality Bites back then. Mm-hmm. That came later. But yeah, that, that was the first one was on Awake Radio. And Paula, who later became my wife, was the producer. I'd never met her. Um, and Steve, another Scottish guy, uh, who was uh, a co-founder of Awake Radio with Paula. And I think during that talk, uh, Steve actually came on. He was he was in bad health, but um, he later died. Mm. Um, and I, we, we we all got together. I said, "Isn't it unusual? We've got three three Scotsmen in three different countries, all talking, all, <laughs> all speaking the same language, uh, all talking about the same subjects." Uh, and it was uh, it was unusual because I've never heard it. I've never heard it again. Mm. But. Uh, yeah, I think 20, 24, 25, 26 times Alan was on, uh, in whatever, whatever guise it was, Reality Bites, Silver Independent, mm-hmm. uh, radio. And again, many, many times when he called, I, I said to him, this, this would have made a great radio show. <laughs> recorded it, but, uh, you know, and it would have done. But yeah. I think I, I don't know if, well, I'm sure you, you listened to the, the little piece um, that you're putting together for Alan's uh, memory. Uh, people always said, oh, it's doom and gloom, it's all doom and gloom. But it had a sense of humour. It had a sense of humour. I mean, there's, there's, you couldn't uh, you couldn't spend two hours on the phone and not see you had a sense of humour. He had a great sense of humour. You know, uh, I, think it's a, I think it's a Scottish thing. Who knows? But, yeah. uh, uh, I don't know where to go after that. I guess. Well, I think um, I just wanted to say about the Scottish people, you know, I'm sad that I have never been to Scotland. Uh, and you talk about apathy, and it made me think when you said that, that, you know, it, and you know this, but the attack on the Scottish people is, is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old, the Highland clearances and mm-hmm. losing their independence and putting on the uniform, the kilt for another country, England, and going to war for them. And yep. and for a period there, they were not allowed to wear their plaids, their colors, their tartan, and well, speak their course, language. They, they did, yeah, they did the same to Ireland. The yes. same, same technique. And yes. they, they did the same to the, the Native Americans as well. Mm-hmm. Same same technique over and over again. And the Indians, yeah. uh, the Indians of India. Um, yeah. So when you see, I mean, you know, the apathy is not a surprise. I mean, that was the desired outcome, so they were successful. Yeah. yeah it, it, it often made me wonder what happened to the fight. Where, where did that go? You know, I don't, I don't, I suppose TV's got a lot to do with it. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot, of, a lot of it as well. It's, it's amazing. Uh, in Scotland, people are very passionate about football, soccer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially the Scottish football team. And they kept getting beat, 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 beat. And, you know, you, you think, oh, well, oh, well, you know. That's it. We're Scottish. What do you expect? That's, that's the kind <laughs> of attitude it was. That is the kind of attitude they had. And, uh, you know, but that, that, that fed through to, to normal everyday life. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're downtrodden. We're going to stay downtrodden. What can you do about it? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my, my choice was to get out. Because I, I couldn't live like that. And that that was Alan's too. I mean, he saw he saw where it was all headed many many years ago, decades ago, and he said that I I can't. And for him, it wasn't just Scotland, but it was all of the UK. It was too. Yeah. It was it yeah. was over. Well, now, I mean, now uh, of course Scotland is uh, finished as a as, a, as any kind of re- resemblance of what it used to be mm-hmm. uh, due to immigration, due to you know the the ex the ex Scottish Communist Party mm-hmm. um, running the country for the last number of years, uh, but I think Ireland Ireland is uh, in a far worse state. Oh, uh, 
What has happened to Ireland, especially around the abortion issue? I mean, they, they've had a number done on them, unlike anything that I can well, imagine. And, and, and the immigration issue. Yes. Um, both go hand in hand, of course. You start aborting Irish babies, and then you start bringing in foreigners who are going to have uh, babies. more babies than you. Yeah. Yeah, Ireland. There was a, a situation last week. Uh, I can't remember the name of the village. But the village has 141 residents, uh, Irish. And they're bringing in 243 uh, fighting age young men from Pakistan, Afghanistan, Syria, uh, some countries in Africa. And they're putting, up, putting them up in one of the old British colonial palaces. Oh. Uh, 243 uh, in a village of 141 Irish people, and these are all young men. Oh, my goodness. What, what could possibly go wrong? Mm. You know, it's... Uh, I mean, I, they, there's a lot of process going on in Ireland, but uh, I, I learned a long time ago that walking up and down the street with a placard isn't going to achieve anything. Um, especially at... Uh, I was at Bilderberg in Watford in England, and I stood, I stood back watching the people waving placards at the limousines coming in. And I thought, these, these people in the limousines are just laughing at us. Mm-hmm. They're just laughing at you, standing in your, in your, your designated protest zone. Yes. You know, and uh, we, we went round the back of that hotel but, and uh, saw some of the cars going in there. They didn't like that. No. Um, we got chased away from there. See, the sad I, thing... I, uh, go ahead. Uh, I mean, the thing about the... That meeting in Bilderberg, it just turned into the Alex Jones and David Icke show. That's, that's all it was. Mm-hmm. I remember that event. Yeah. Well, what I was thinking about immigration, and this is Europe, Europe-wide, really, and, and it is also um, it, Canada and the United States. I mean, it's, it's a, a worldwide, because this is the agenda, the displacement of huge numbers of people. And unfortunately... The fellow at the bottom lashes out at the wrong person. So it's like the owner of that restaurant that was such a racist. Um, they always attack. The, see, these, these people, these young boys that have been flooded into this Irish village, they are victims just as oh, yeah. the Irish villagers are victims of yeah. this agenda. It's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I lost my train of thought there. I was going to say Sorry something. about that. Uh, sorry. No, it's okay. I was going to say, but I mean, part of my, uh, I, I, I told you earlier, I used to go on holiday three times a year. Yes. And my whole uh, outlook on going on holiday was to get away from anybody speaking English. <laughs> that, was my, that was my thing. I didn't want to be around people from my own country. That was that, to me, that was the whole point of getting away. I wanted to see them. I, I didn't want to just uh, experience a bit of sunshine and sand. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wanted to, to see the real people. Mm-hmm. And the real, the real culture. So I would, I would always make a point of uh, just getting off the beaten track. And you know, people, people would say, "Oh, you, you don't want to go down there. Oh, it's dangerous. It's dangerous." You know, all this rubbish. I, I never had any trouble anywhere I went. I, I walked up a mountain in India, over this hilltop, and there was a guy at the top of the hill, and all he had was a hut and a Coca-Cola machine. <laughs> and I sat there for like an hour just talking to this guy, and he's he's pidgin English. Uh, and I actually had to drink a can of Coke, which I wasn't too happy about, but, you know, I had to um, give him something for his time, like. Right. Uh, but again, he was, a, he was a, a genuine enough person. He was just an ordinary old guy trying to make a living. Another time in Turkey, I was, uh, when I was living out there, I was, uh, I went across the street to do my laundry. So I take it across and I was, I was in the hospitality industry. I was, I'm interested in cooking. I like food. And they had a, a huge big uh, platter of lentils, dry lentils, sitting in the, the middle of this table and they had a fridge with some beer in it. So I, I, about 10 o'clock in the morning, I've taken my laundry over. I was like, what, what are you doing? I said, oh, we're, we're picking the lentils, taking all the bad ones out. I said, right. And they said, do you want to help? I said, yeah. I got home at midnight <laughs> <laughs> from 10 o'clock in the morning. Um we picked a lot of lentils, but we drank a lot of beer. I, well. I was going to say, I don't think that was lentil picking going on. No. Oh, we did, we did pick the lentils. Yeah. That, that had to be done. But those those kind of – again, 
another time in Turkey, uh, my son was a soccer fan as well, and two, the two big teams in Turkey were, were going to play that night. So he wanted to go and see it, and he's, he was about 12, 13 at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, pa- I passed the shop, and it was a, it was a, like a store for this one of these teams. I thought, oh, they'll, they'll know where we can watch a match. So we go in, and I speak to the guy, says, do you know where the match is going to be shown on television tonight? He says, yes, it's going to be shown here. <laughs> I say, it's all right, okay. He says, you're, you're very welcome to come. I says, okay, okay, thank you. So I, being a Scotsman, I go off and I buy some beer to take to take to them because that's what you do. And I get there and they were highly offended that I brought drink for me because uh, they had a fridge full of it. And oh. it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't my job to bring them beer. I was their guest. Right. So I went upstairs to this in this shop and basically the fridge was in the middle of the room. There was about 30 or 40 guys there, me and my son, and the and the TV sat on the top of this fridge. Ah. And again, uh, I got home at midnight or something again, but uh, that's the situations I get myself in when I'm, <laughs> I go on holiday because it's uh, it's not about it's not about just getting away from it all kind of thing. It's 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 about seeing how the other half lives, uh, how different cultures are, how what makes people think, and what what uh, strikes me is that they all have the same issues with the government. Mm-hmm. Every one of them mm-hmm. will tell will tell you the government's corrupt. The government's corrupt. It doesn't matter what country you go, uh, who you speak to, that they all know that the governments are corrupt. Yeah. No, I've I've had similar experiences like that. That uh, I had the opportunity to travel with a friend many many years ago to Fiji, and I just met a woman out and about, and she turned out she said that she was the daughter of the local chief and then she invited me and my friend and my friend's little children to her home and we had this amazing authentic Fijian meal sitting cross-legged on the floor of her little very modest little house but she was explaining to us that there were like 300 different tribes so she she was the daughter of that tribe but you know there were 300 other chiefs just in that area. Mm. It was fascinating. Yeah. And, and I mean, and this is in modern times. I'm not that old, yeah. but, you know. <laughs> well, when I, when I first bought the, the house in, in Bulgaria that I was telling you about uh, close to the, the Danube, um, I bought it off the people who, who uh, owned the house next, next to it because it was the same family. They, their, their children had grown up there and mm-hmm. they'd built another house uh, for the children. And then the children had gone off to the big city because that's just what happens these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were selling it. And they said, they said to me, and I, I didn't speak any Bulgarian at the time, and they didn't speak any English, um, through an interpreter, they said, do, do you mind if we look after the garden? And I was thinking, this is manna from heaven. What, this is this, <laughs> fantastic. I couldn't have wanted anything better. So I, I, I go away, bought the house, done all that. And I come back, and it's full of food. Wow. And... Uh, they go, take what you want, no problem, it's your, it's your garden. They say, but it's your food. They say, no, 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 no problem, you take, you take what you want. And this, this is a very, very typical of Bulgarian people, Eastern people in general. Uh, they'll give you anything. They, really? You know, nothing's, nothing's, uh, too much for them. They don't have a lot, but they'll give you something, mm-hmm. you know. Every, every time there's a holiday or somebody's birthday there, uh, the, the guy's wife, uh, Anka, uh, husband's Vensi. Uh, she'll bring over cakes and, uh, special, speciality Bulgarian cooking and all this kind of stuff and give me it. Mm-hmm. Just, there you go. And he'll give me like a, a, a two liter Coca Cola bottle full of his homemade wine. Wow. This will happen every few weeks. Yeah. Any, any excuse for the holiday? That's, <laughs> well, I, I know that you haven't been in Bulgaria in a while, but I no. had, uh, an email from someone not too long ago and I, they're English living in Bulgaria with their family and they were just talking about, I I think some of the regulations are catching up there because the children now have to go to school. You're supposed to be vaccinated to go to school with with the COVID vaccine and all of that. So it's sad to see because what you're talking yeah. about going on holiday is to see cultures as they really are, and of course that's all being decimated so yeah. quickly. Yeah, well, that's that's why I bought a house in a village 
primarily. Mm-hmm. I could have, I could have bought something in the city which uh, would have got me to the same location as the bridge was being built anyway. Mm-hmm. But I didn't. I, I wasn't interested in that. That's uh, live in a village. I lived lived in a village with the donkeys and chickens walking around the streets. That was it. Sounds ideal. But um, yeah, as, as soon as as soon as the the Bulgarians were conned into going into the European Union. Oh well, they weren't conned. They were actually just taken in. Uh, I, d- I didn't meet anybody who wanted to join it. Mm-hmm. Not, none of the young people want to leave Bulgaria. Right. But um, in the villages, that is, they, they, they've got an att- they've got an attachment to the land. Uh, they want to stay there. Sometimes they go abroad to get work uh, and send it back home. Mm-hmm. The money. Um, it's a beautiful country. As, yeah. As, as soon as they joined the European Union, that was it. It was uh, it was gone. They started uh, saying that bees were dangerous. You couldn't have uh, your beehive in your garden. You had to, it had to be 300 metres away from your house, which to a lot of people was impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, because the big agriculture companies had already come in and bought the land off them, which they already owned outside the village. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they said that pigs were dirty, smelly animals. They couldn't have them in the backyard either. So the pigs had to go. Uh, the, I think they limited, to a certain extent, how many uh, birds they could have. Uh and then the, the price of the, the chicken feed and everything was skyrocketed. Um, the cheese, all the dairy products went sky high prices, and uh, you know relative to what they were. Mm-hmm. They're still cheap to me when I was living there, but mm-hmm. relative to uh, them, it, it's the same has happened everywhere. As soon as the EU gets involved, that's it, everything goes mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. And their, their currency, of course, although they, had, they still have the lev, it's, a, it's tied to the, the euro. Uh, a fixed rate, so they're basically they're basically using the euro, but it's, it says it's a Bulgarian lev on it. That's yeah. All. So they've been conned like everybody else. Yeah, I remember when this all first rolled out. Um, I was speaking with an Italian, and and this was years ago before I had heard Alan's talks. I didn't really know what was going on, but um, they were talking about how the their lira. For the average person, it took a cup of coffee that they had been able to get for, you know, just nothing. What would, might be the equivalent of 50 cents American. And it had, it had made it a seven or eight dollar, eight euro cup. Yeah. Well, and that I, was I overnight. A, yeah. I, I had a coffee shop when the euro came in. Mm. And, uh, it, I know other people just uh, put their prices up and on. I, I redid my, I had a chalk, a chalk price list I used to do by hand. Mm-hmm. And I, and they get the, and out of the kindness of their heart, they gave you a calculator so you could convert from uh, the Irish punt to the euro. Um, and I just, I just did it from a price, the same price I had the day before, and I converted it exactly as it was uh, for the rate. And I put it up. And people were complaining because they had to find change. And I says, well, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to round it up like everybody else has? <laughs> I says, I'm charging you what I was charging you yesterday. Yeah. And uh, people were just, uh, oh, it's an inconvenience. I have to look for change now. Uh, and you think, well, I'm, I'm doing you a favour. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, no good deed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was, uh, my, my parents actually were in Donegal in Ireland for New Year, the same, the same year that happened. And they were in the hotel at the New Year's Eve uh, party, and the drinks went up after midnight. Oh. They didn't even keep them the same. During the party. Oh, that's outrageous. Yeah. But My my dad said, my my dad, he he doesn't really know what's going on or anything, but uh, he doesn't doesn't take things nicely like that. Uh And... uh, Oh, he's 86 now. That was, this was back. He would, he would have been in his 70s then. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, he said, I've just been up here half an hour ago and I've paid whatever it was, you know, in Irish punts for that. And now you're saying you want that. And he, he knew what it was in his head because he'd been uh, an assessor for an insurance company and an auditor. Mm-hmm. So he could, he could figure things out in his head mathematically. He says, you're charging me a third more than you did half an hour ago. And uh, he got his drinks at the right price. He just complained. That's it. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a bit like uh, in Germany before World War II when they had to haul around their money in a, their Deutschmark in a, mm-hmm. or whatever it was, 
called at that time in a wheelbarrow <laughs> to buy a loaf of yeah. bread. Yeah, I had a, I had a friend uh, who went to Yugoslavia when mm-hmm. it was still Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Just gone up, just gone up to the war there, and he came back with more money than he went with because of inflation. It says it says it was like that. It says it was like they did muggy for the wheelbarrow. Never mind the money. But again, that's uh, another another number done on those countries. I've, I've driven through those countries uh, many many times: Serbia, uh, Croatia, mm-hmm. and uh, I tell you what, Serbia's got the best roads in Europe. Really? Yeah, oh, it's a fantastic roads. Not not a pothole anywhere. Nothing. Why do you suppose? You know? uh, I guess the Russians paid for them. <laughs> 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 but uh, even in Bulgaria, the, Ru- the Russian infrastructure, and not so much the buildings, the buildings are kind of derelict after the lift, but uh, the, the engineering that was done there, uh, the, the bridges over the, the huge valleys and everything, mm-hmm. amazing, amazing stuff uh, really? back, back when they did that, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, we, we can't do it now. No. As I say, they, they built that one across the Danube in Sweden and... Uh, in Bulgaria, where I was living, and it was falling apart the minute they opened it. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the details, but when I was up in Canada, there was a bridge, and I think it was two different events. One was a bridge, and one was a road, and and they were it was done with. And I'm sorry, I don't want to slang on the Chinese here, but it was Chinese construction, Chinese concrete, and you know the the bridge was literally falling apart before it was driven over. Yeah, that's the same as this one. Yeah, exactly the same. And they used to uh, they used to actually do uh, stress tests on the concrete. So they had these little concrete blocks, maybe eight, eight inches, eight inch cubes. Mm-hmm. And they, they they made hundreds and hundreds of these things. I mean, uh, they're supposed to have done all this before before they got the contracts. Mm-hmm. But no, they were, they were they were doing it as the job was going on. And uh, there were so many of them. We built a a Christmas tree about 10, 12 feet tall out of these concrete cubes. <laughs> uh, just stacked them all up. Um, but another part of that was when they were actually doing the job, there's a, there's a big dike there, huge dike. It was all mm-hmm. the way along the Danube on one side because the other side's a floodplain. And the, the, the Bulgarian side used to be floodplain, but there's a fort there. There's, uh, you know, the, the, the town's quite old. And it was, it was a walled city at, some time, at one time. And there was a huge dike there. And I'm standing on top of the dike with the engineers. And they're looking out at the, the pipe work. They put pipes in to channel the water away when they were going to put stuff in there. And I says to them, I says, what, what use do you think those pipes are going to be when the water rises? I said, oh, that, that won't affect that. It'll still go under them. I says, well, two years ago, the water was where we are standing now. Mm. It, was, it was 40 feet higher than they put the pipes in. <laughs> And, and they're supposed to have done the assessments and the tests and all the structural engineering and all this rubbish. And they hadn't done any of it. Ah. Uh, they, they, they banked a lot of nice money on that contract and that was that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They put in a really cheap price and then went 100 million euros over budget. Ah. Uh, but that's okay. They're part of the gang. That's right. It is a gang. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, you know, you just reminded me before you carry on. We, you've you've been around the world in this uh, conversation, and and if you've got a cool, I know of a few Bulgarian folk songs that are quite lovely. But if there's any music you want to plug in or anything like that, send it over. Oh, okay. yeah. Bulgarian music, Bulgarian music. I I heard so much of it that uh, the funerals used to go through the village. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'd be it'd just be a, like a, a brass band and a drummer following wow. the cortege, and it was uh, it was always a da, 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 you know that <laughs> one. I, I heard that so many times. But then they'd have uh, these kind of village festival things and stuff, mm-hmm. and the village the house was in actually had an international one. Um, I've probably got some video of that somewhere uh, if I could ah. find it. Cool. Uh, certainly got some photographs of it, yeah. uh, where they all wear their traditional costumes and stuff. And the, the the groups came from Hungary and Serbia and all places. There was a big stage put up in the village square. Uh-huh. And it's like, uh, uh, May Day goes on first first week first weekend okay. in May. It always uh-huh. happens. Interesting. So yeah, that's, that was quite interesting. But uh, generally, every, every Bulgarian tune I've heard sounds the same. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's it's it's. Uh,
I guess it's, uh, and they all, they all dance to it. All the, all the men dance. There's no embarrassment about men dancing with men or any of that stuff. There's nothing mm-hmm. sexual about it. It's just that, you know, they're all having a good time. That's it. Yeah. Ended up where you are now, and yep. and so I'll let you say where you are now and how you got there because that's an interesting story too. Yeah, well, I'm in I'm in Florida, as uh, probably most people know if you've listened to us before, and with Paula, who was my radio producer for 18 months uh, before I even spoke to her face to face. We met up in Ireland, where. Uh, the guy Steve I was talking about, who came on with Alan and myself, mm-hmm. uh, he was he was getting close to dying. So we decided I was in England at the time, mm-hmm. and we decided we'd go over and see him, and that's where we met. And then the rest is kind of history. But it was a it was a long journey. I I came here in 2014, and I overstayed by four months. Uh, for a number of reasons, uh, Paula's father died, and mm. a, a lot of other stuff was going on. And I went to the the immigration office in Tampa twice and asked them for advice bef- before I I had overstayed. Mm-hmm. And they said, "Oh, no problem. Just do that, and uh, fill in these forms afterwards, and it'll, it'll all be fine." I told them the situation, what had happened, and why I was over why I wanted to stay. And then the fir- that was they said that the first time, and. I thought that doesn't that just doesn't sound right. I'm going to mm-hmm. go back. Mm-hmm. So I went back again, and they gave me a load of forms to fill in. Say no, no, just go out, you know, go and fill these in, and then bring these back, and then you should be okay. So I get out to the car and I look at the forms, and the first page on the form says, "If you come here on a, I can't remember the name of the visa. It was a, a, a special visa you get for visiting from the UK." Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't. You're not eligible to fill in these these documents. Oh no! Like, oh, there you go. Uh, by that time, I'd overstayed, um, so uh, I was like, "Oh well, I'll just stay." And it got to ten months, and I was looking at all the the rules and regulations. I was thinking, "Okay, if I stay another two months, I'm going to get a ten year ban. Ooh. Uh, if if I go now, I'll get a three year ban." So it wasn't easy, but we came to the decision that was the best thing to do. So had you that, had you and Paula already married at this point that no, you had no, no, no okay no, no, no. so but you're banned uh, from the US for 3 years uh yeah uh. but uh I went to we had an attorney here mm-hmm. I went to England I did some work there saved up some money and then uh I did one interview in London mm-hmm. and I knew that I knew they wouldn't let me go but I just wanted to see how it, what the procedure was Mm-hmm. So I went along and I was expecting them to say no, they said no, and I was like, that's fine, whatever. Um, and then I I saved up enough money and I went to live in Bulgaria. And that's that's when the whole bridge thing came in and I was working mm-hmm. there and doing that stuff. Mm-hmm. But um the or was it? No, no, that was that was after that, so that's before that. I'm I'm losing track of the, the chronology. <laughs> um so I've, uh, I've moved to Bulgaria. The attorney here knows I'm in Bulgaria. And I got a phone call, I think, 18 months later from this attorney. 
And she says, uh, I've got you another interview at the embassy in London. I says, ah, ah great, thank you. She says, when is it? She says, Friday. I says, it's Tuesday. <laughs> I says, I'm in Bulgaria. Uh... She says, I'll, I'll, I've already made the appointment. If you don't go, it'll look very bad. Oh, no. So I'm going, right, okay. So I, I booked last-minute flights. I had to go, you know, Bulgaria to London. Uh, stayed in a hotel in London. Went to the interview. And they said no. And they said, uh, you're, you're still serving a three-year ban. Yeah, we're not going to let you in. Uh, and I, I said, why did you get me here? I said, I've just come from Bulgaria at three days' notice. Uh, it's cost me a fortune in the airfare, blah, blah, blah. And they'd already, they, took my, they still took my passport. I think, well, why did they take my passport if they're, if they're saying no? So they take my passport, and uh, my, my mother and father stay a couple of hundred miles away in the, on the west coast of England. So I planned to stay there to go visit them while I was doing it. So I went there. And my passport was supposed to be back in a few days. And they lost it. Oh, Neil, this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I don't know if that's deliberate or not, but they lost it anyway. And after numerous phone calls, polite phone calls, to the embassy and then to the people who they were supposed to send it out to, uh, to where I could collect it, close, close to where I was living, I just lost it one day and I started cursing them down the phone and said, oh, we found it. <laughs> And I said, oh, you found it. And I went to collect it, and they couldn't get me out the door quick enough. They just gave me it and walked away. And it was all, it was all a locked place. So they, they went through the, the special door that you can't get in, and uh, that was it. And I got my passport back, and then went back to Bulgaria. Uh. Uh, so the attorney says, right, the only solution is uh, you got to get married. I said, well, we're going to do that anyway. But I explained all this to the immigration before I even left America. Mm-hmm. And uh, But they, you know... Anyway, so Paula had to we decide on the Bahamas because that was that was recognised as a, a valid wedding certificate. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. So Paula went to the Bahamas. I flew from Bulgaria to London, from London to the Bahamas. Uh, we got married a few days later, and I had to fly back to Bulgaria for another year, year and a half. Oh, or, or nearly two years actually. What yeah, a night! What a honeymoon! Yeah, yeah. So we had two weeks in Barbados, but uh, like I said before, we went and met some locals and we ate in a, this this really huge, big uh, Bahamian lady uh, who who made us dinner every day, like fresh fish and all this kind of stuff. And that was that was great, duck mm. cheap. Uh, if you went down to the, the local town, a frozen pizza and everything in that island that's uh, in the supermarkets exported uh, out of Marks and Spencer's in England. Oh, my goodness. Quite incredible. Uh, a frozen pizza was the equivalent of $20. Ooh. <laughs> and uh, it was a, well, we can't afford that. We ain't doing that, <laughs> you know. So uh, we just ate cheap, but uh, it was a, you know, it's the best food we were going to get there anyway. Well, I can tell you, if, yeah, fresh fish is, would trump a pizza. Yeah, yeah. Unless you were well, in I, Italy. I, I didn't... But, yeah, I didn't buy the $20 pizza. Yeah. I, I, make, well, I make my own pizza. I ain't buying, I'm paying $20 for one. Uh. So anyway, that was that. So, yeah. Then I, I, I said to the attorney, I said, you, you, got, you got me over there. You must have known they were going to say no. No, 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 they never said that. that, that. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going, to, I'm going to change my whole case to the embassy in Sofia. Mm-hmm. And she went, that'll cost, oh, that's, that's going to cost you about $500. I says, you've just cost me £1,500. Mm-hmm. I says, I'm going to I'm going to transfer it to there for five hundred dollars. So that's it. Transferred it to there, and I think it was a it might be a year and a half or so later. I I got the interview in the Sofia embassy, and I went down, and uh, I was literally in the queue there with about two hundred and fifty young Bulgarians. Every one of them was getting a visa. Every single one of them. None of them was refused. And I thought, well, there goes the youth. Mm-hmm. There, there's, mm-hmm. there's all the brains mm-hmm. uh, getting sucked out of Bulgaria, mm. all the college students and mm-hmm. stuff like that. You know, I got to the I got to the desk and the guy goes, "Oh, that's yeah, yeah, for Yep, no problem. Stamped the passport right there and then. Wow. I, I thought I should have done this earlier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, that was that. And then uh, there was a Nigerian guy there, and he was applying to. He was a doctor. <laughs> and I says, "How did you get here?" He says, "Oh, I was working in." Uh, in uh, Sofia, uh, in a hospital there, and now I've been—I've got an internship or something in Boston or something like that. 
So I got to chat to him and I shared a taxi with him to the bus station and <laughs> I just meet these kind of people. Well, that was interesting anyway. Yeah. So that's, that's how I got here eventually. So but, uh, uh, it, co- it cost about $10,000 plus the extra money that I'd spent in flights I didn't have to spend money on. Uh, uh, I could have gone through Mexico and just walked it. You know, I but, bet you were, yes, yeah. 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 But, then, but then I wouldn't have been able to work or anything, so. Yeah. 